Number one, next week I'm not going to be here. Everyone remember. Um, I'm going to make it up in the semester break, which is whenever it is. I'll remind you when it is, okay? Um, I think it's in another few weeks. Um, so just remember, there's no class next week, okay? So it will be on the 17th or whatever it is, yeah. Um, the second thing is... Um, this Wednesday, tomorrow night, uh, Rav Yitz is speaking here. I've already announced it a few times. Highly, highly recommend everyone coming. Um, I've spoken to him about it a few times. It's, it's really going to be a summary of his theology, which I'm spending six years doing. He's going to try and summarize it in 45 minutes. But knowing him, he'll do a very good job, and I really recommend people coming to hear it. If you haven't booked tickets, book already, because it is getting booked. Um, I think that's all the announcements. Okay, so let's go back to our sheets. Um, I want, so if you remember last time, what we were looking at, we began to look at, or we, we almost finished looking at the parallel between Migdal Bavel and um, the dream, Yaakov's dream. We, various things that we spoke about, we spoke about the idea that Migdal Bavel, first we obviously saw the linguistic uh, parallels between the two. Okay? We spoke about the idea of the, uh, the words being Roshob HaShamayim or Roshob HaShamayim, the only two times these words, are, these words feature Bichlal in, in Torah, actually juxtaposed one to the other. We spoke about the idea of the Eben, both having the Evan, all the various linguistic parallels between the two. We then spoke about the idea of them both going east, okay, if you remember. Um, and east, moving east is, is in some senses moving towards, uh, sorry, moving away from civilization. In Migdal it didn't really, it wasn't really that case because that's kind of just where they went to. They were civilization. But certainly for, certainly for Yaakov, it's very significant. And one of the significance we spoke about last time is what does one do when one moves towards toward civilization? Meaning, I'm now going to go to Manhattan, so to speak. What, what am I doing there? What, what do I feel as an individual when I'm walking around with all these skyscrapers, almost anonymous in, the, in that sense? And what does that do to me? We spoke, we looked at George Simmel, we looked at all the various... Um, Charles Taylor, etc., etc. We spoke about the idea of um, generally when we speak about the idea of history, we look at the idea of nationalism versus particularism or um, communalism versus particularism or individualism. And what happens? What are the dangers of both these things? I actually just want, I've totally forgotten, I, it's very important. I want to, um, a very uh, old a friend, classmate of mine, unfortunately passed away from flu um, this week. Um, she, yeah, she, she was originally from London and she was in school with me. She was 40 my age and also with me in, on my year off in Orot. And she left behind five young children. Mamash, mamash, a tragedy beyond a tragedy from absolutely nothing. And um, so the shiur will be Lilui uh, Nishmata. The Ganit but Gita the Moshe. And um, just, I'm literally going to say one or two things about her. And actually, this goes back to what we were speaking about last week. It was actually so interesting because I went to the Levaya, which was up north. She lived in a Moshev up north. And one of, the, one of, the fr one of the fr her friends spoke at the Levaya. And one of the things she said, and I thought it was so profound because it much related to everything we spoke about last week. She said that it's a Ghana, and we all knew this about her, and I, I, it's interesting, um, 
uh, I'll speak from a very personal place, when I, she was always very, very unique. She literally walked to the beat of her own drum. Okay, she always was unique. She looked if she was beautiful, but she always dressed differently, looked differently. She didn't she what she and she was everything was out there. Her you know, she said what she felt. You knew where you stood. Everything was out there. And I think when you're younger, I was speaking to a couple of old friends of mine this week, and I said, when you're younger, there's, and we spoke last time about fit, what does it mean to, be, to fit in and what does it mean to belong, and the difference between belonging and fitting in. Um, and last time we, we spoke, uh, I was thinking about the fact that when you're young in school, um, you want to fit in, and you look at someone who's mamash unique and doesn't feel the need to do that, and you see them as a little bit different. And as I grow older, I recognize how unique that trait that she had was. And what it did, and this was what they spoke about, was that she allowed herself to be vulnerable. She let out her emotions. She told you where, where you stood with her, where she stood with you, what her emotions were. It was all there. And in a sense, she allowed for that vulnerability. And, and the friend said that also allowed for very, very deep and meaningful relationships. Mm -hmm. And when we spoke about last time, this notion of vulnerability and, when, and, and how one stands in between the chaos and the order, that in a sense, when one is vulnerable, when one allows for vulnerability, one is literally keeping one foot in the chaos and one foot in the order. And we spoke about this in terms of Yaakov. Um, and, and even the nedel that he makes, and he says to Hashem, you know, give me clothes to, to, to wear and, and, and water and drink and food to eat, and I will return to you and I will build you a home. The, just the juxtaposition of those two things is that sense of feeling in a moment of chaos, in a moment of vulnerability. I do not know what's going to be. I do not know how I'm going to survive. But if you allow me to get through that chaos, I will build you an order. I will build you a structure, right? And the same when we were looking at this idea of the building of the Tower uh, of Babel and this kind of real dialectic that exists between the order and the chaos. These people come together and they build this ordered structure according to the Midrash in order for the Rosh Hashanah, in order for them to reach the heaven. Why? So that they can create the order. So that they go up to God, they battle with him and they create the order. And in a sense what the dream comes to do and the parallel between the dream that Yaakov dreams and the order of the Tower of Babel is in a, a message to Yaakov that you are now in that moment of chaos. You've left everything that's familiar to you. You've left your home. You've left, you've left your place of belonging, so to speak. You've left your mother who was always the one that told you what to do. Okay, you're, you're going, you're entering the moment of chaos. And in that moment, he has the image of that ladder. Now that ladder in the one sense creates a sense of order and structure and reassurance. And on the, in the other on the other side, there's, there's that imagery of the, the coming out, the kind of dispersion. And those two images create what we said, this kind of tension, so to speak, between the chaos and the order. And I really think that's very much where Yaakov stands most of his life. Most of Yaakov's life, there is one foot in the order and there's one foot in the chaos. But I want to move on today because I want us to compare. Last time I said to you, I want to compare three narratives. So we've compared the first two. Okay, if you remember just a few ideas that we did, we spoke about the idea 
that in both narratives, people are building a tower, okay, sorry, in the Babel narrative, sorry, people are building a tower and they're seen as ultimately, they begin Ishal Re'ehu, that's how it starts. They begin seeing I, thou in Buber's language. They see the other as an end in itself, as a subject, but ultimately in the end, they see the other as an instrument. And that, by the way, comes out, is conveyed in the Midrash that talks about the idea that when a person fell, they, they didn't care, but when a brick fell, they cried. What happens is that when ideology becomes the priority, a man becomes secondary to the ideology, one's lost a sense of dignity, of respect, uh, of seeing the other as a subject, okay? And that's essentially what happens in the Tower of Bubble, and we see it in the language. I sent you the link on the WhatsApp group, if, I don't know if people manage. The, the recording was not the right recording. I don't think I have a recording of the lesson, but I sent you the blog post that spoke a lot about this idea. So if anyone wants to read, I'm not going to go over it because we, we learned it two years ago um, for those that were in the class, but if you want to look at the ideas, they're all there. Um, in any case, what happens here is that when one moves towards civilization, there is always a danger. Okay, and this is what we, we read Charles Taylor and we read, read George Simmel, all who are modern, who are philosophers who speak about the danger of modernity. And all of them say that the danger with modernity, they were all writing in the late 1800s, okay, but they all say that, and obviously predicting what would be, the danger with modernity is that when the project of modernity becomes the priority, then the, the, the greatest danger is that men become instruments in that project. And when man is turned into an instrument, or man is turned into a means and not an end, an object and not a subject, we know history has shown us what happens. Okay, yesterday was Holocaust Memorial Day. We know what happens. And this is the danger in some senses. The parallel between the Tower of Babel and the Dream of Yaakov is coming to warn Yaakov, you are now moving away from the promised land. You're going to move to an, a place where God, where you're not, you, you don't need to be dependent on God. Okay? You don't need to even feel God. You're going to become a businessman. You're going to move to Laban. You're going to move in the world. You're going eastwards. The biggest question is, will you still be able to maintain your humanity? Okay? Will you still be able to maintain that diversity, those different languages, okay? that respect for the other? So that was one idea that we looked at. Um, the other thing that I think is very, very important and one of the main themes that we're going to now see with the third narrative, and that is the individual versus the collective. Okay, We saw with the Tower of Babel that I think the, the major motif that runs through that whole story is the idea of how does one create a society where on the one hand we are collectively working towards a unified end and on the other hand we are maintaining and respecting the individuality of each person or the diversity of every human being. How can one work within those parameters? And by the way, that's, that's a, a dilemma that every society has. Okay? Every, and what's happened today, and we spoke about this in history, what's happened is that very often over the time, over the period, um, over the history of humanity, what happens is societies lean towards one or the other. Okay, so you have all a society that leans towards 
prioritizing the unity and the goal and the ideology at the expense of the individual, or you have a society that prioritizes the individual and the diversity, but at the expense of the collective. And that today is what has happened. Today what happens is we've got the breakdown of family, the breakdown of the collective, the breakdown of any ideology and any goals, okay, of, of putting above, you know, my individual needs something, my giving, my, my altruism towards the community. All of, that, all of that's broken down because the individual individuality has become individualism. Okay, and the same has happened on the other scale, on the other side of the scale, and that is that when, when one says the collective is the most important thing, what happens is the individual becomes null and void. Okay, and we've seen that obviously in history, that's happened plenty of times. And the biggest, biggest dilemma, the biggest question, okay, is, that, is what happens when. Um, what, or how can one look, how can one balance the two? Is there a way of balancing these two themes together? And I think that that's something that Yaakov, and, and I think this is one of the reasons, by the way, that Yaakov is, um, that Yaakov is, is the father of our nation because, in a sense, because, in a to give him is that then he needs to find a way to balance these two ideas. Okay, I have literally one left. You won the lottery. Okay, so I want to look at the third narrative. And here, again, as I said to you, the narrative of the Tower of Babel and the story of the dream, I've seen other people parallel them. I have not found anywhere else, and again, that's why I'm I'm, I'm putting myself out there because I don't know if it's right, but the way that the text shows up, to me, it's so obvious that there's a third narrative here in the parallel. And that is the narrative of when Yaakov is about to enter back into Eretz Yisrael. So I want us just to, for a second to, um, there's the three narratives, okay? One is the Tower of Babel, okay? One is Yaakov leaving Eretz Yisrael, which is the, which is the, the dream, Okay, and the third is when he comes back into Eretz Yisrael. Okay, or as he's about, he's still in the outskirts, um, but he's about to come into Eretz Yisrael. And in this story, he makes a Brit with Lavan, which I'm going to read with you in a second. And what's absolutely fascinating is that all three of these stories, okay, and by the way, this is, this is as, He's leaving Eretz Yisrael. This is as he's coming back in. But this is on the heels. What comes immediately after the story of the Tower of Babel? Abraham. And Abraham is what? Lech Lecha. That's how we're introduced to him. Okay? Lech Lecha to Eretz Yisrael. So all of these, all three of these, all three of these stories, all three of these narratives, so to speak, have a commonality in the sense that they're all related to coming or going from Eretz Yisrael, and they're also all related to the idea of the nation. This is what we're going to talk about. Look, go back in your sheets to source number... Hold on. Uh, source number two. 
Okay? Now, source number two, when, I'm just going to contextualize for a second. When does this happen? Source number two happens when Yaakov has run away from Lavan in the middle of the night. Okay, again, everything with Yaakov happens in the middle of the night. Okay, in the dark. Okay, he runs away from love and, and it's all about deception. It's all about deception. Okay, he run, and we're gonna, again, we're going to get into that in far more depth a bit later on. He runs away from love and in the middle of the night, Lavan runs after him. He realizes he runs after him. He catches up with him. Lavan says to him, how could you have done such a thing to take away my, my, you know, my beloved daughters and sons and, and grandchildren? And he says to him, and you stole my trophy. And Yaakov turns around and says, we did not still, how dare you say such a thing, whoever, wherever you find the trough in that person shall die. We're going to talk about that in depth much later on, okay, but there again, Yaakov falls into a bowl, literally into a, 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 a pit by, by making a nedale that he should never have made, a vow that he should never have made. And, and from that vow, we see the death of Rachel, of his beloved Rachel. Okay, um, so he swears that. And then eventually they, they come to an agreement that Yaakov is going to. Yaakov says to him, I never took anything that wasn't mine. I never stole anything that wasn't mine. Again, what we're seeing with Yaakov is there's a very, very deep psychological trauma. Yaakov wants to be innocent. He wants to prove to everybody around him, I have done nothing wrong. But the proving to everyone around him, I have done nothing wrong, wrong, is in a sense trying to prove to himself, okay, I I haven't done anything wrong. But we know that deep down, it's something that accompanies Yaakov his whole life. This guilt, and we're going to talk a lot about this notion of guilt and shame, and what Yaakov's journey is in trying to overcome these things, okay? But here is at the end of all of this. And him and Lavan sit down together, and they make a Brit. So look at what happens. Va'ata. Lecha nechrata Brit ani va'ata. Okay, so Yaakov turns around. Um, source number two. Yeah, okay, sorry, I just got a bit lost. Okay. And it's going to be a witness between me and you. The Yakach Yaakov Evan. Yaakov takes a stone. The Yarima Matseva. And he makes a Matseva. Okay, we can't help. But see here the parallel between him leaving Eretz Yisrael when he puts, when he takes the stones and puts them under his hands and makes them up over, and him coming out on the edge of coming back into Eretz Yisrael, the Brit that he makes with Lavan. Okay, they make some kind of um, how do you call it? Half circle. It's like a an arch, okay, some kind of arch, okay. Okay, and again, it's very, very interesting. And, and here I want us to really be aware of what's going on here. They both make this matseva and they call it by different names, okay. They call it by different names. And I want us to remember one of the basic problems with the story. And again, the story of the Tower of Babel, we haven't gone into it in depth, as I said to you. But one of the basic problems that all the Mepharshim have with the story is what did they do wrong? 
We see that Hashem isn't, God isn't happy with what they do because he comes down and he says, what have you done? How can, and he disperses them. But what is it about what they do that is wrong? And here all the Rafashim come, they try and understand. But one of the main things that we see is that they, they want to make a name for themselves. And what is this name? This name is a singular name. One name. One name for everybody. Okay? How does the narrative begin? Who remembers how the narrative begins? Um, uh, uh, um, one minute. The narrative begins, and, and again, it's a hint as to what is, what's the problem with the whole text. The whole world was one language and a oneness of things. Already we begin to see something here is not right. Okay, it, it's not natural for everybody to be the same. Okay, um, and therefore, here we see what's fascinating is that they both make a matseva, they both make a Brit, but they call it by different names. Okay? Um, let's continue. Um, okay, he says, this is a witness, that, this is a, a proof, a witness that we have made this Brit, and he calls it Galed. Again, fascinating. The Ishmerehu, where do we find that exact sentence? In the Tower of Babel narrative. Okay? The Yomru Ish El Re'ehu. Remember in the Tower of Babel narrative. Okay? Im et benotai vi intakach nashim al benotai ein ish imanu. Re'elohim ad ed beini uveinecha. And they make all the various um, contractual bits, okay? Um, clauses. And he says, here it is, it's in front of us. Now listen to what they say here. And this is, to me, this is the key. Okay? Yaakov and Lavan set up this Matseva. And they turn around, Yaakov turns around and says, you are not passing. I will not pass over to here, and you will not pass over to here. And if one of us passes over where this matzeva is, it is it will be for badness. That's that's really how it translates. But it's not a good thing. What what is going? Let me just finish, and then we'll come back to it. El Abraham right? The God of Abraham and the God of Nachol, Yishpatu beinenu. They'll be the ones that judge us. And Abraham and Yaakov swore according to Pachad Aviv Yitzchak, the fear of his father Yitzchak. Have you got the... Oh, I've got, I've got it missing. Yeah, I've got it missing in these sheets. Sorry. Okay, now again, even here we see that the motif of the bread, of eating the lechem, of yalinu, of lying down. Okay, there's a lot, a lot of parallels here. The matseva, the avanim, the nedel. Okay, all of these parallels take us back 
to the original narrative of him leaving, of the dream, of what happens after the dream, and it also even takes us back to the narrative of the Tower of Babel. They almost a, a, it's a corollary narrative. Okay, it begins with the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel one parallels with the dream, and the dream parallels with the story of the Brit between Lavan and Yaakov. He goes back to his place. And Yaakov goes to his. Okay, the same wording that remember when he stops in the place and here Okay. To me, there's, there's, there's no question that there's a parallel going on here. And the question is, what is it trying to teach us? Okay? What, does this parallel, what is this parallel trying to explain to us about what's going on? Um, and how can we understand it? And I think it goes back to everything we've been speaking about. Okay? Yaakov and Lavan represent two different philosophies, two different worldviews, two different cultures. Okay, two different outlooks in every sense of the word. Okay, and Yaakov recognizes that. The fear that, the, as I said to you, one of the things that Yaakov represents is the idea of how to maintain my particularity in a universal world. How do I maintain my individuality within the collective? Okay, but I think for us as Jews, it's even one step further. Okay. Unlike many other religions, we don't believe that everyone should be Jewish. And that puts us in a very unique position. Because it puts us in the position whereby we can turn around and we can say, we don't want you to be like us. In fact, the ideal is that you are not like us. On the other hand, we need to create boundaries. We need to create borders so that we can maintain our own particularity and you can maintain your particularity. And through that, we will respect each other and we will dignify each other. But we don't need to be the same in order to do that. And this is where the world has gone mad today. Okay, Because there is a sense today that in order... For me to feel dignified, I need to be the same. Everyone has to, I can, everyone has to be the same. There's a sameness. But to turn around, and this is the big difference between, and I really want to point this out, and actually, this is, I learned this from Ravi Greenberg. There's a big difference between radical pluralism, sorry, not radical, between pluralism and radical relativism, okay? Pluralism means, religious pluralism, the pluralism that Rav Yitz and many other religious um, thinkers stand for, means that I believe in my truth. That is my truth, and I believe with every fiber of my being that that truth exists. However, I also believe that I am a human being and I am fallible. I also believe that maybe I might be wrong. I also believe that there is a chance that there is a chance, and again, this opens. This is this is my sense. This is my point of having one foot in chaos and being open to vulnerability. There is a chance, and this means being humble. That maybe 
I've got some things wrong. And maybe I need to listen to the criticism of others. But I still stand and I say that this is my truth. But that doesn't take away from saying that's your truth. And your truth also stands. And in the same sense that I believe in my truth, you believe in your truth. But if you also are open to a sense of fallibility and you are also open to a sense of being, maybe being wrong and humble with it, then we can both stand together but yet also create the boundary that separates us. Now, as Yaakov is about to enter Eretz Israel, he is about to go back to the destiny of being a particular father of a particular nation, of recognizing that he has a role to play, and that role means that he is different, and that he has a different goal to Yatelavan. And therefore, he sets up a matseva, a boundary, and he says to Lavan, Adkan, this is where you go. And you go back to your place with your gods, and I go to my place with my gods. And the Brit that they make, and I think it's so profound, they both swear to the Brit, but they swear on different gods. And it's respectful. He has his God, and he has his God. And one does not take away from the other. There is, in so many ways, this narrative comes as a tikkun for this. That's why it's a corollary narrative. Okay? In a sense, what happens is, we don't... This narrative, remember I said to you there was a massive parallel between the two. Okay? And I said that this narrative, in many senses, comes to teach Yaakov the danger of what happened with the Tower of Babel. You're about to leave your particularity. You're about to move out of your individual status as a father of the nation. You're about to move out of Eretz Israel. And the danger of leaving Eretz Israel is the danger of being swallowed into universalism, of being swallowed into Babel, into the collective. Okay, of, of, of being swallowed into the ideology that basically takes away all sense of individuality. That's the danger. And he's warned of the danger as he leaves Eretz Israel. But what happens is that when he's about to enter, and here we see that maybe Yaakov indeed did learn from the dream. Because he's reminded of the dream and he reminds himself of the dream by taking the Avanim by making the matseva, and the text even says, Isha re'ehu, by reminding himself of the dangers of Babel, but also of what he, what becomes, I believe, a, almost, we could call it a, um, um, Judy Clifton and her book calls them a, what does she call it? A, something narrative, a, anyone remember? Not a counter-narrative. She calls it basically a narrative that comes to, to almost bring a tikkun to the original narrative. So she, for example, she looks at the women in Sefer Shemot, that whole story at the beginning of Sefer Shemot, as the counter-narrative. She calls it something else to the story of the Tower of Babel because that's when people were anonymous and don't know their names, but they acted on their individuality. Okay? But here I want to bring a different thing. I want to say that this, this is what happens here okay, with Lavan for Yaakov, is a t- and not just for Yaakov, for us as the readers, is a tikkun, but not just a tikkun, it's not just a rectification of what happens in the Tower of Babel. It's actually the remedy 
Okay, it's the remedy, it's the fulfillment, so to speak, of the dream of Babel before it went wrong. Okay, it's the dream of Babel before it went wrong. So to speak, it's the point in which the individual is allowed to be the individual for what he is, to maintain his belief in his gods, to make a Brit, a covenant. Again, it's not just some a, a pact. The Torah tells us a Brit. You remember everything we've learned about the notion of Brit. We spoke about Abraham and Sarah. We spoke about God and Abraham and all what Brit means. Brit literally represents the idea that I am entering into a covenant with the other. I am respecting the other. I'm allowing the other his place. I am listening to the other. I am communicating with the other. But I'm allowing the other to be the other. Okay? Yeah. Because Yaakov made this erroneous measure, basically he didn't quite fulfill that. Because had he not made that measure and allowed for possibility of being wrong, then he actually did this by making the promise it's based on a lie unbeknownst to him it's true however he needed to be right and he's he needed it basically it's saying i'm the individual and i must stand up sacrificing the other Okay, I want to say, we're going to speak a lot about his notion of what the nether is. The nether with Lavan, I don't agree. I think the nether with Lavan is Dafka, he's got it right. But the nether he makes about the truffin, the one you're talking about, I thought so. And the nether he makes about when he when after the dream, they're, they're both wrong. But I'm going to explain to you why. Because at the end of the day, and here we're learning Tanakh Begove Nayim, Okay, that, that's my tfisa. Okay, that's my way of looking at it. And what I'm going to say here, not everyone will agree, but what I'm going to say is that at the end of the day, Yaakov was a human being. And a human being means, okay, yes, he was on a level we can't imagine. He spoke to God in a way we couldn't even begin to imagine. But he's Yaakov Avinu in the same way Abraham is Abraham Avinu. And it's not stunned that they are because they achieve things that most human beings couldn't achieve, but they were still human beings. Okay, and I think one of the things that Yaakov lives with, and we've spoken about this a lot, he lives with a sense of PTSD, if for want of a better term in terms of modern language, okay? And that is that he, the fear of... Um, that there's two elements to it. The first is the element of what he did to his father and not being able to live with that guilt... Okay, and trying to justify himself all the time, but it's forever following him. That's one thing. But the other thing is, and I think this is very important, okay, he also lives in the ancient world. And the ancient world is a world in which the, the idea of Brit, the idea of having a relationship that's based on covenant with God is, is totally unheard of. It's radical. It's, it's, it's never even entered their mind. For us, it's such a natural thing. Okay? But in those times, it wasn't. And it, they're still living in that ancient, with the, the, the gods of the ancient time. It was Masal Matan. That's how it worked. It was always, I'll give you this, you give me that. Okay? I'll do this, you do that. Okay? And it's fascinating because Yaakov always goes between the two. Look at his conversation, for example, with Rachel when she says to him, Havali Banim and I aim metanochi. Right? She turns around and says, Give me, give me some why what's Yaakov Ra- Rachel? Rachel's basing her idea on this idea of you you go and you you 
beg the gods and they'll give you what you want. You're a tzaddik. You know what you're doing. You go and do it. And he turns around and he says, Hatachat Elohim Anochi. He knows logically. He understands what Brit is. But sometimes when you're in a moment of absolute vulnerability, okay, which is the moment after his dream, Okay, he's still out there. He doesn't know what's happening. He's in total chaos. Everything that's familiar to him has been left behind. He still needs that reassurance. He's still bargaining, so to speak, with God. Okay, and we're going to talk about that because the Mepharshim go both ways, by the way. There's some Mepharshim that say he did absolutely nothing wrong, and I'll show you those. And then there's others that say, no, what he did was wrong. Okay, the same with the Trafim. Same thing. You've got those that say, no, there was nothing wrong what he did. And there's others that say, yes, he totally, what, the death of Rachel was because of what he did. So I would say that the, the beauty of Yaakov is that he's a complex being. Okay? And there are moments where he gets it. It's clear. We have the same, all of us. There's moments when we have clarity and we know logically what we're meant to be doing. And we see the clarity. We see in, in such detail that we know that this is how it's meant to be. And this is what we're meant to do. And then there's other moments where we're clouded. There's other moments where all our life experiences, our traumas, our complexities cloud our vision. And we make judgments that are wrong. Yaakov is the same. And we see it all the time with Yaakov. It's so fascinating. It's, it repeats itself again and again and again. And we're going to look particularly at this idea. Well, we already touched on it a few times. That we're really going to go deep into it, when we look at the encounter with the Malach on the edge of Yabkut, that really is the moment in which Yaakov fights those demons that, and again, in modern psychological language, that PTSD, but those demons that he struggled with his whole life, he meets at that moment. And I bought for you the few Pesukim that come after, okay, which is after he's about to, so, so all of this is on the edge of entering out Israel. And, and in those Pesukim, what happens is he limps, okay, he finishes that and he limps afterwards. When he, after the dream, so interesting, because after the dream, how does he leave after the dream? If you look at the source number one, right at the end, he lifted up, almost in buoyancy, he lifted up his feet and he walked. There's a very, very big difference here. And I think that that dream comes to tell Yaakov that every, every, that living, put it this way, that life and living means living with fragmentation, okay? And I think, and we're, we're going to get, we're going to go much more into depth what that exactly means because it's, they're not in, it's not in these sheets, it's the next lot of sheets, right? But I really, really think that the beauty of Yaakov, and again, it's reflected in the idea that his name, not like Abraham who moved from Avram and then permanently became Abraham, okay? Sar, Sarai permanently became Sarah. Yaakov always is oscillating between Yaakov and Yisrael, because there is a part of him, that Yaakov, that Ishtam Yoshev Olin, that innocent person who lives in the tents, there's a part of him that always remains there. And in some ways that always wants to go back to there. And I say the same for us. Is there not a part of us that always wants to go back to the innocence, to the, the before of the, 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 the time that was before, right? The before that was now. All of us want to go back to that moment of 
when life wasn't so complex and there were, we weren't living in that grey area and the chaos didn't come and didn't rain and there's a part of us that I always say, like, one of the things I always think to myself, and it's just reflective, it's something so tiny, but it's reflective of that innocence of childhood. I, whenever I come home and I've got bags and bags of shopping in my car, right, and I, and I always, like, think to myself, I remember so clearly being in the car with my mum, coming home, and she, and I was a terrible daughter, I didn't actually even help her. I think about it now, what was wrong with me, right? And she would, like, be schlepping the bags in, and maybe I took one bag in, I don't know. And now I remember, I, like, get home, and I'm thinking, oh, I've got to schlep all those bags in. Don't worry, I get my kids to do it as well. But I'm saying the point here is, it's something so tiny, but the point here is just that, that tiny, like, you know, that feeling of being free, of, of not having all those all that all, all those, he that heaviness, right, the bags, the heaviness that comes with, but on the other sense, and that, and also really the other, the other thing that that story's reflecting is the sense of responsibility, okay, that sense of responsibility that in all, that all of us carry as adults, and we all should carry as adults, right, and that Yaakov is always oscillating between going back to the moment that was before the deception and the growing up and the going into the world and the chaos and the vulnerability and the moment after. And the Yisrael, what does Yisrael mean? Kisarita im Elohim v'im anashim v'tuchal. And I think that's so profound because you struggled with man and with God, but you can, but you are able to, right? And that, to me, is exactly who Yaakov is. And therefore, yeah, 100%, he is always oscillating between that clear vision and that not clear vision. But in this particular case, I really believe in this particular case, the he has it right. He understood. The fact that he makes that much over, the fact that he says, this is your area and this is my area. Okay? It's, it's, it's really withdrawn to the question of how do I build my particularity? How do I create the boundaries for me to be able to grow in my individualism or as a nation with a particular goal and a particular message? Okay, what do I let in and what do I let, or what do I not let in? Okay, we, we spoke about this last time, like, you know, the Hanukkah story, the lighting the candles at the door. What part of the Greek culture do we allow in? What don't we allow in? Where do we begin with? And I think that is always there. And he turns around to Laban, he says, Adkan, Okay, let's make the pact. We're going to do it here. But once I enter Eretz Israel, that's not your domain anymore. Okay, now I need to take my family away from you. Now I need to build and create my nation, my particular message, my particular goal, my particular destiny. And you, you're not part of that anymore. And he returns to his God and his place. By the way, this, there's another person who also is taught, also... It's very interesting. There's another person who, it's also, if I think about it now, the word's parallel as well, that also returns back to his people. Who's that? Yitra. Exactly. Okay. Yitra comes to Moshe, teaches him, brings with him a message that Moshe adopts. And again, that's exactly the point here. That it doesn't mean I don't learn from anybody else. It doesn't mean I don't let anything else in. Okay, Dafka, that's exactly... I. I don't want to be totally closed off because if that's the case, then I can't learn from others. I can't critique what I'm doing. I will never be able to grow. I have to be able to learn from others. And Yitro brings that message to Moshe. But when Moshe says to him, come and come on our journey, come and be our eyes. He says, come and be our eyes because he has some vision, some clarity that Moshe doesn't necessarily have. 
What does Yitro reply? No, I am going to return to my people and my nation. And I think that is something so profound in Yitro's message that he understood he needed to teach to Moshe. And that is that the solution doesn't come from assimilation. The solution comes from maintaining our particularity, recognizing and respecting the other, learning from the other, but at the same time, knowing what those boundaries are and always returning to our core. That is the message that Yitro delivers to us as a people, to Moshe. By the way, that's exact, that, to me, it's always fascinating. Why is it the very parasha that we receive the luchot, that we receive so-called the manifesto of our particularity, is it named after a, 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 a priest, a, a, a foreign priest, right? A, a, a priest that isn't... And I think the message is very, very, very deep, right? That we must never lose this, a sense of the dignity of other people, of the sense of respect and diversity, even when we have been given the manifesto for our individual um, or particular um, purpose and goal. Okay, so I think all of these things tie all tie in together. Um, just thinking, was there anything else I wanted to say about this? Um, no, I think that's it for now. Okay, so I want yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, it's. I think it really is. It goes back to exactly what we're saying here. All of these things are on the border, coming into Israel, coming out of Israel. What does it mean to have an identity when we're not in our land? And is that? And again, this is. These are questions, by the way, that are so relevant to today more than ever. Right? You look at. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, people. You know, they look at the relig- religious Jews and say, "What do you need? All that halacha. We're people living in our land. We're a nation. We don't need." that particular halacha anymore, that particularity of, of that strictures of those laws, right? And, and again, that response is, if we're a nation living in our land, does that define us? Is, is a, are we defined just by being a nation living in Israel, okay? Or is our particularity defined by halacha, by the laws, by particular laws that God gave us, which stand alone, which stand on their own outside of being in the land of Eretz Yisrael. And that, 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 by the way, is an argument that is all the time, right? And I think that that is very, we see it all the time when we go into exile, when we don't go into exile, what does it mean always? I think one of the key things is also this notion of assimilation, right? Am I, again, am I Jewish or am I American? Am I an American Jew or am I Jewish American? Okay, or, or whatever it is, how do I define who I am? Okay, and is it even important? 
Okay, is, my, is the definition of the individual important? And today most people would say, no, we can be whoever we want to be, right? But then we lose something. We lose a collective. We lose obligation. We lose responsibility to something deeper, okay, to, to, to a shall share it, to, to a chain. You know, there's been so much discussion about Harry and Meghan, right? La Havdil, right? Um, um, but, but again, the, the, it's interesting because, the, you know, all of the discussions that I've seen go back exactly to this question, right? When you're part, when you're responsible, you're part of something. You you have a tradition that's part of who you are. You you've been given that yoke of responsibility, so to speak. Can you just let go of it? So today's world will say yes, okay. But 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 perhaps the more traditionalists or or those that feel that there's something much greater than just that title of <coughs> prince and princess will say no. There's something wrong in just saying I'm just going to throw it off, right? And that I think these are all. This all goes back to. To, to what we're seeing in the postmodern world, which is how much do we maintain, I would say, at what expense do I maintain my particularity and my individuality um, versus becoming a universal, or versus a universal view, right? And, and where, what, what are we losing in both, okay? And how do we maintain the balance between both? And to me, by the way, the Torah, you know, if we've spoken about the idea that one of the major themes in Sefer Breshit is the notion of chaos and order, one foot in chaos, one foot in order, how do we manage between the two? I would say that one of the major themes of Sefer Shemot and Bamidbar, maybe even Sefer Vayikra as well, arguably, is exactly this idea of the universal in particular, of the individual in particular. Sefer Bamidbar begins that way. Okay, it begins with the idea of the counting of the people. Okay, I, I mean, there's so much to say there, but how does one create an, an army and a nation that's going to go into an, a land that has to fight for a bigger goal? Again, exactly almost similar to the Tower of Babel, right? How does one create that, but at the same time dignify each and every individual? It's a very, very big question. Okay, and that's the question that, that in Sefer Bamidba particularly we're grappling with. Um, and, and in Sefer Shemot, Sefer Shemot begins, by the way, we're just reading it now, it begins what? It begins with no names. The whole of Perek Bet, the whole story about Moshe being saved, all the women that are saving Moshe are anonymous. They are not given names. But they, without their names... Okay? Meaning that's, that was what was happening at the time. The slaves had no names. That's what it means to be a slave. I have no identity. I have no name. I'm just part of one big whole universal goal to build pyramids that I am an anonymous person. And if I die, no one cares. But these women defied that by doing the acts that they did. And those acts defined their individuality. And we all know their names, even though their names are not recorded in that particular parrot. Okay, so... Saying all of this is all connected. Someone else wants to say? In the parish also, the Midrash says that um, what kept us was our uniqueness, name, clothing, and uh, language. And I think that the problem with the Erlach, they didn't have the sense. They were they were they, they had one foot here, one foot there. They, they didn't know exactly where they belonged, and they caused all the problems. Beautiful. I think that's a very, very interesting point. And, I also, and it also goes back to this notion of what we spoke about, of fitting in and belonging. When one has a sense of belonging, okay, one is not scared okay, to engage in the universal because one always has that sense of belonging. Okay. Um, final comment, then we'll we'll move forward. You want yeah, to just a quick one. <coughs> talking about vows and putting it in the ancient world. Um, I went to a field yesterday. This is in ancient Greece, 
That's the story of exactly, exactly. It's the story of Bat Yiftach, exactly. Very interesting. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. I want to move now. So I, I, we're finished now with this whole, this notion of these these parallels, and I want to move now to the second sentence that we see in the story of Ladder. Okay. If you remember, just look back very very briefly at source number one. Okay. Um, look at source number uh, source number one. Pasuk um, pasuk yud. Okay. Oh wow! God is in this place. Or it could be. Can it be that God is in this place? Vanochi loyadati. And I didn't know. And he feared and he said, How great is this place? It cannot be that this must be the place of God and this must be the gate of heaven. Okay? I want to focus on, for, for, for a little bit, on this idea of and I want us to think for a second about Yaakov. Yaakov until now, okay, as, we, as the Torah described as Ishtam Yosheva Alim, okay, the, the way in which Yaakov envisioned or understood the divine, okay, was that the divine was within the tent. That was the place where the divine resided, okay? The divine was there. He didn't touch other places, okay? That's where he found God. That's where God was. And all of a sudden, he is been totally dislocated in every sense of the word, in every sense of, of, of the word, both obviously literally and geographically, but also within himself, okay? Existentially, there's a relocation. And Yaakov, oh, it's almost as if he's forgotten about that Ishtam Yosheva Olim. It's almost as if that whole world... That whole yeshiva experience, for want of a better metaphor, right? That whole yeshiva or, or, or sem, whatever you want to call it, experience is there. But I'm here and it doesn't touch me. And all of a sudden he has this dream and God is there in this dream. And he says, God is here. Va'anochi loyadati is very important. Look at what Aviva Zornberg says. He wakens that is with a deep conviction. Where? Where, oh, a uh, source four. Is it? No, 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 no. It's not source four. It's not source four. It's source uh, 16. Okay. He wakens that is with a deep conviction that he did not know. He has brushed against a knowledge that could arise only from the way of ignorance. In such profound shifts of experience, the revelation is the not knowing. The sense of previous darkness itself intimates a dawning light. Okay, what is Aviva Zornberg saying here? Okay, I think what she's saying is that the I did not know allows him to experience the divine. Okay, the I did not know allows me to experience the divine. What do I mean by that? So I've divided this, um, this I've divided it into, I think, three, uh, two, different, two different ideas. 
The first idea I've called, I did not know, okay, and I did not know. And the second idea is called, where do we find God? And I want to share with you two different, I want to share with you ideas on these two, two things that I did not know. What does it mean, I did not know? And I want to read with you a book by someone called William Barrett, okay, who was a 20th century philosopher. Um, and he wrote about the, I think I may have actually bought him before, I can't remember, but he wrote about, he wrote about a lot of things, but in this particular book called Irrational Man, he writes about the age of modernity, but he writes specifically from the perspective of the school of existentialism. Okay, we've spoken many, uh, many times about the school of existentialism. The school of exis- the existentialists, essentially, which really the main existentialists begin around the 19, after the Second World War, so 1950s, 60s, 70s, in Europe, particularly in Germany and France. Okay, and they very much um, talk about the idea they, they based themselves on Heidegger, who was a very famous phenomen, uh, philosopher of phenomenology. Heidegger speaks about the idea that um, our being, our existence, is what defines reality. And the existentialists come along, and they talk about the idea that it's not that our feelings, that our sense of being, is what creates our reality, rather than our minds, rather than necessarily reason and rationalism and everything else. Okay. And one of the main things that the existentialists grapple with is the idea of anxiety, that we are all anxious. And where does anxiety, what is the root, what is the core of anxiety? So one of the things they talk about is the idea of our mortality, is the notion of death. Okay, now it's not a surprise that this erupted in the 1950s and 60s, okay, on the heels of the Second World War, particularly in Europe, where many people were either fighting in the war or experienced firsthand the horrors of the war, okay? This, this, this is when this was all taking place. But I want to read with you here what he speaks about because it's, I brought you a very, very long quote, and I apologize, okay? But I think it's really, really important. And the more I read it, the more I kept thinking Yaakov, Yaakov, Yaakov in so many areas, okay? By the way, also a little bit of Yitzhak as well. Just in terms of anxiety during the existentialist period, that was the period that nuclear war was considered a real Yeah, fair. Very interesting. And the other thing he talks about is that's really, really important. Every, and again, this goes back to everything we've been speaking about. That period was mamash on the heels of chaos. There was a sense, and again, this is really important for us to understand and contextualize. There was a sense in the world of trying to create a new order, so to speak, but still having that chaotic feeling that surrounded us, which touched very, very deeply to each and every individual. By the way, the the religious existentialists, but even the other existentialists, what do they talk about? So they talk about this idea of the very much focused on the individual, okay? They talk about the individual experience rather than some universal reason that we can all tap into. They speak about the individual experience, and one of the things they say is that we have to work out, we have to try and understand how to overcome this anxiety. What allows us to continue living, okay? What allows us to continue hoping, dreaming, being, existing? And they all speak about various different things, okay? Um, and, and various different solutions, but one of the things is to, to create meaning, okay? And we've spoken about this many times before, but the notion of how do I create meaning in my life and et cetera, et cetera. One thing William Barrett says, and this is fascinating, is he says that when existentialism reached the shores of America, the Americans just saw it as 
like a kind of sentimentalism. They didn't get it. And one of the reasons they didn't get it, although later on they adopted it in different ways, what really was going on at the time in America was, was, was neo-pragmatism. Neo-pragmatism, I've spoken about this before, people like Richard Rorty and, and Hilary Putnam, if that, those names mean anything to anyone. The neo-pragmatism took elements of existentialism, but it was much more positive, much more optimistic. And it's not a surprise because most of the Americans did not experience the war first. Hand, okay, so anyway, that's like by way of a background. I want to read. I want to read with you. And one of the things that really touched me is when he speaks about the notion of truth. And I want us to remember that Chazal talk about Yaakov as Ishaemet, which is of course totally ironic. But in calling him Ishaemet, they are they are telling us Chazal. I really believe in their brilliance. Okay, are telling us something about what the notion of truth is for Judaism. Okay, if you call the person who his entire his entire life is haunted by deceit and they call him the man that represents truth, what does that say about truth? Okay, and I want us to we're gonna we're gonna look at that more in depth later on in the in the year, but I want us to just see what William Barrett he says like this. Anxiety is not fear, being afraid of this or that definite object. But the uncanny feeling of being afraid of nothing at all. Okay, now, so just for one second, I want us just to think about that. One of the things that the existentialists said was, you know, they came, a lot of the existentialists, by the way, were also psychotherapists. (laughs) And one of the things they said is they came along and they said, all the psychologists till now who had been dealing with anxieties were dealing, were treating the symptom and not the cause and the symptoms so meaning I'm afraid of the dark so you're treating the symptom of being afraid of the dark but the cause according to the existentialists of all of these anxieties is what they call the fear of nothing at all and what's the fear of nothing at all of my own, of death and of my own mortality, of my nothingness, of Adam too in Rav Soloveitchik's language right of being created by the dust of the earth and returning to the dust of the earth Okay? It is precisely nothingness that makes itself present and felt as the object of our dread. The first time this fundamental human experience was described by Kierkegaard in his concept of dread. Kierkegaard, by the way, was, he was an existentialist philosopher, but he wrote many, many years before the more modern existentialists, and a lot of them base their work on Kierkegaard. Okay? Kierkegaard, if you remember, those were with us last year. We addressed Kierkegaard specifically when we spoke about the Akedah. Do you remember? We bought Kierkegaard and we spoke about his book, Fear and Trembling. The entire book is on, is, is written about Akedah Yitzchak. Okay? He was a Christian. He was a religious Christian. Um, was described by Kierkegaard in his concept of dread, but there is but... There it was done, only briefly in passing. Heidegger has greatly expanded and deepened Kierkegaard's insight. Okay, don't worry about all the philosophers now. Significantly enough, the dread described by Kierkegaard was in connection with the theological problem of original sin, the sin that comes down to all human beings from the first sin of Adam. Before Adam chose to bite the apple, Kierkegaard says, there opened in him a yawning abyss. He saw the possibility of his own freedom in the committing of a future act against the background of nothingness. Okay, what's he saying here? Okay, he's saying here something fascinating, that when Adam went to eat from the fruit, what he was actually doing is he was winning himself back autonomy. 
Okay, now think about what we've spoken about Yaakov. Okay, remember we spoke about Yaakov, that most of Yaakov's life, in a sense, is a journey towards autonomy. Until now, it was almost as if he was coerced to do what he, was, what he did by his mother. And in a sense, what he needs to do by, by disengaging and disconnecting from his home, his belonging place, is to win back a sense of autonomy. What, what uh, William Barrett is saying here, and what Heidegger is saying, that the original sin in men, and again, I know this is quite a Christian idea, but in the sense that there's a truity here that speaks to all religions, and that is that there is a sense in sin, okay, in any sin that we do, there's a sense of actually trying to show my freedom and my autonomy, that I can do something. Like we said, like when a three-year-old does something that they know they're not meant to do, and they're doing it, and they're looking at you, right? And as a mother, they're doing, you said to them, don't go near that, or don't turn the television on, and they're going, coming closer, and they're looking at you as they're doing it, and as a mother, on the one hand, you're actually smiling inside, because you're thinking to yourself, what does it show me? It shows me that, that my child is actually an independent, free, autonomous human being, okay? That's here what they're, they're saying, Okay? And what he's doing is he's committing this, he's showing his possibility of freedom, okay, against the background of nothingness. Okay, this nothingness is at once fascinating and dreadful. In Heidegger, nothingness is a presence within our own being, always there. In the inner quaking that goes on beneath the calm surface of our preoccupation with things. It's so profound what he's saying here. He's saying that, and today more than ever, by the way, okay, Erich Fromm, by the way, Erich Fromm is an existentialist, a psychotherapist, right? And Erich Fromm speaks about the notion of having and being, okay? And in his notion of having and being, he says that today we've become so overwhelmed by this idea of having and we think that it's a solution to our problem of being. Our problem of being is this problem of how do we contend with the nothingness of our existence? But by Gain, you know, by going and buying this and doing this and building careers and doing this and building skyscrapers and trying to, you know, have lots and lots of things, we think that we will overcome the nothingness of our being. Okay, it's it's a classic Adam one and Adam two that Rav Soloveitchik describes, where Adam two goes out, conquers the world in order to try in some senses and subsumes, try and kind of suppress the Adam to voice that's inside of him, okay? Anxiety before nothingness has many modalities and guises, now trembling and creative, not panicky and destructive. Sorry. Uh, has many guises now, trembling, creative, not panicky and destructive, but always it is an inseparable from ourselves as our own breathing because our anxiety, because anxiety is existence itself in its radical in security okay again this is this very notion of the radical insecurity is this idea of the chaos is the toll the vol it's the moment Yaakov leaves everything familiar to him that's the, the notion of the chaos in anxiety we both are and are not at one and the same time and this is our dread our finitude is such that positive and negative inter penetrate our whole existence. From being itself, man is finite because he lives and moves within a finite understanding of being. His means, among other things, that human truth, too, is always penetrated by untruth. Human truth, too, I'm reading it again. Human truth, too, is always penetrated by untruth. 
And this goes back to what we discussed earlier about Yaakov, okay? And goes back to what we said about particularity and universalism. Even in, even our most, in, in the strength of our absolute convictions, there has to be, in order for us to be authentic human beings, in order for us to have true relationships with the other, we have to have a small element of fear, of doubt, that there's an untruth there. Because only in that way does the truth really reside. Only in that place does the truth really reside, the human truth really reside. If you remember the Midrash of, Hush, of God, the very famous Midrash of when man was created, it's actually in God in the time of man created, and God throws truth down to the earth, right? And, and then truth grows from the earth. What happens when God takes truth and throws it down to the earth? It fragments, okay? It fragments and it grows. And the, the motif there or the, the metaphor there is is truth grows from the land. But when anyone who's gardened, right, knows that when a plant grows, what grows at the same time is weeds. And very often the weeds are very clever because what the weeds do is they... They, they try and, what's the word I'm looking They imitate, right? They imitate the plant. In fact, there's actually in our garden what I am know for sure. It must be a weed, but it looks like the plant. And it's been there for so long that I just don't have the heart to pull it out. It's like enormous already, right? And I think it's for sure a weed. But what, and that is exactly the problem. The problem is that when truth comes from humanity, there's both an incredible sense of responsibility and autonomy that's given to human beings, but there's also a danger, and that danger is that people will imitate the truth, okay? Um, and here we have gone as far as possible from Hegel and the philosophers, the Enlightenment, who adopted to enclose truth in a system, okay? And here he came with one sentence, he throws all of those people that try, all of modernity, all of the modern philosophers that try to place truth into categories and very, and, and almost equations like Kant, almost that we can access truth through categories and equations, the existentialists come and say, that is an impossibility, okay? Our finitude discloses itself essentially in time. In existing state, the word etymologically, we stand outside our ourselves at once open to being and in the open clearing of being and this happens temporarily as well as spatially the future is the not yet and the past is the no longer and these two negative the not yet and the no longer penetrate his existence they are his finitude in its temporal manifestation i'm going to finish here and we're going to carry on next next time from the next part which is very important but essentially what William Barrett is telling us here, and, and you're going to see how this all connects next week. We're going to connect it all to Yaakov. But what, we, what we're seeing here is the nothingness. What Aviva Zornberg says is that sense of losing the structure of everything I knew before. That's what's happened to Yaakov. That the structure of the tent has been dismantled. And in that dismantling of the structure of the tent, every sense of his being has been dismantled with it. And the question is, can the tent and everything it represented in terms of God and truth and everything else be built up again? And that's what we're going to look at next time. Have a great week.